Hello everyone, I'm Logan. Um, what a honour and a privilege it is to be able to open up God's Word, His entire Word, to have it and to read together. Uh, so jump into, we're going to read first from Deuteronomy, just this quick one, and then we're going to jump over to Hebrews. So if you keep up, I'll give you a bit of time in between this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then we're jumping over to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he has made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we're looking uh, two weeks at God's character exploring some key theological truths that Christians do believe. Today we're going to look at the Trinity. And as we begin, I want to ask you a question. You can ponder it for a few moments. Uh, Which person of God, Father, Son, Spirit, do you more readily relate to or think of? Which person of God, Father, Son, Spirit, do you more readily think to or think about or relate to, do you think? Jesus. Great, yeah. You don't have to answer, you can just think through it. But Tim thinks Jesus, great, excellent, perfect. See, understanding the Trinity, even just a little, is incredibly practical, you see. Your, your, your relationship with God, says Tim Chester, will be deeply enriched if you think about how each member of the Trinity is relating to you and how you're responding to them. Your relationship with God will be deeply enriched as you think about how each member of the Trinity is relating to you and you responding to them. Do you want to have a more richer and joyful relationship with God? I think you do. I'm going, to, I'm going to assume for the today that you would like that. Do you want that? Well, this is why the Trinity matters. It is not an abstract thing, but very practical. So what we're going to do today is start where the Bible does, and, uh, and the handout is really helpful because you can see all the verses, click on them, and they'll come up. You can read along with us. But we'll start where the Bible does and uh, discover that, first of all, uh, God is one. And Natasha has shown us this, and Logan read it for us too. God himself reveals himself as one God. One in terms of his presence, he's three in one, but also in terms of unity, because God is not divided in himself. And we are to love this one God with all we have for all that he is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now at this point, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, uh, fifth book of the Bible, is doing something really clever. It's preparing us for a complex yet unified God. A man by the name of B.B. Warfield uh, said that the, um, the Old Testament talking about the Trinity is like a house with lots of furniture but really dim lights. You can't quite see everything, right? And any light that shines into that room does not bring anything new in the room, it just exposes and brings to clarity, more clarity to what was already there. So what he says is, the Old Testament gives us glimpses and shadows of God's triune nature. The furniture is there, we don't need to add anything else. What's needed though is more light, so the furniture can be seen. 
And in the New Testament, the lights go on because the light himself has come, Jesus, who shows us with greater clarity, Father, Son, Spirit. Therefore, we affirm God is one in essence, three in persons. And at that point, we bump into our first practical implication of why the Trinity is important. Why is the Trinity important? Because the Trinity keeps us humble. Everyone say the word humble. Humble. The Trinity keeps us humble. Yes, it's hard to understand at points. But remember, while we can truly know God, and it is good to know God truly, all of our knowledge of God is like a five-year-old painting a picture of you with paint and paper. It's going to be fine, but there's more to it than that. Therefore, we need to be humble when thinking about our triune God, to maintain a divine awe and wonder about God. And the Trinity does a very, very good job of making us feel like that, having awe and humility. Therefore, let's have that today as we approach our God. Because all the knowledge of God should lead us to say, as Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Let's be humble. But let's dig into the dimly lit room of the Old Testament because there is so much furniture there we can look at to see the shape of the Trinity. First thing we see is that the, the plurality of God. So in Genesis 1, God said, let us make mankind in our image and likeness. In chapter 3.22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Do note, God is not talking to a divine council here. He's talking to himself. This is not an editorial we that you might read in some books. This is the genesis of God being a single being, but more than one. There is a plurality in God when he says, let us. Next, we see the angel of the Lord. So Genesis 18, Exodus 3, Judges 13. In those references, an angel from God appears. And angels are not uncommon in the Old Testament. They appear. But in these instances, it's really strange because the angel is just perhaps a little bit too godlike than angel-like. It pushes the boundary of creature and created too much, and it's like God is just there, but not, but there. Not every angel, of course, is God, but sometimes the angel is actually God showing up, taking on a physical form and characteristics. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, referred to these visits of God before Jesus was incarnate as a theopony. Again, setting up the idea that God is quite capable, quite happy to willingly limit himself, condescend, to a time and place but remain God still. See, before the incarnation, Jesus as a man didn't exist. The second member of the Trinity existed, but at the incarnation, which literally means into meat, God put on a human body. The eternal second member of the Trinity became human. And we learn that God is spirit. In Genesis 1, the spirit of God exists prior to anything else being made, hovering. Then in Isaiah 40, we learn there is a spirit of the Lord God, a spirit of the Lord God, or from the Lord God. The spirit of God fills the temple, fills the tabernacle with God's presence. And so we get this picture that spirit and God are closely related, yet they function a little bit differently, but both attributed to God. The last thing we see is the Messiah figure. Isaiah 9 it says, For unto us a child is born, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Later on in Isaiah 53, this child is spoken of as a king who suffers for his people's sins. Now initially, uh, those ideas of the child and the suffering servant weren't connected. But what's emerging here is the one to save his people will have to be God himself. And at this point, the furniture's there. It's in the room, but it's not sharply in focus yet. What we're convinced of is that God is far more than a static, one-dimensional person. And then the New Testament witness comes along and gives us more substance. And notice those, those points I said. Notice the alignment in the New Testament. The plurality is there again. In John chapter 1, we learn that the Word was God and the Word was with God. His Word from Genesis becomes flesh, Jesus. And then in John 5.17, Jesus says he shares divine activity with God. So Jesus self-identifies with God's Word and as God. Jesus is then said to create all things in Colossians 1. We now see God's talking to the second member of the Trinity at creation. Then we have the Messiah. It turns out that this Word is also the child Isaiah spoke of too. See, when Jesus was born, the angel in Matthew 1, 20 calls him mighty God, the one to save his people from their sins, right? All those Isaiah threads lead to Jesus, tie up in him like a nice bow. And then John chapter 20, when Thomas says to Jesus after he's risen from the dead, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for calling him God. He accepts the worship of God. In Hebrews 1, the Son is described as the radiant glory of God and the exact representation of his being. John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, therefore you can't pull the Father and Son apart. There's equal majesty between them. And then Paul, in 2 Corinthians, groups these together and prays for for the church and says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Then in Revelation 4 and 5, a son of man sits on the throne of God, being given the glory that only deserves God. So the New Testament showing us Jesus is included in the divine, in the divine identity. The Messiah is in fact God himself. Meaning all three persons of God work together as a team to bring our salvation. The Father wills, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. Ah, oh, the Spirit. Yes, that one. We haven't, we haven't forgot about him. We see the Spirit when Jesus is baptized in Mark 1 showing the three persons of God are at work in Jesus' life and mission. The spirit of Pentecost who comes down is none other than God himself because Peter reminds us in Acts 5, to lie to the spirit is to lie to God. In Romans 8, that famous chapter, the spirit prays for you and with you. And in 1 Thessalonians, you can grieve the spirit of God as a person. You know, what that means is we don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. Tertullian, the third century, first person to use it to describe God. But both the Old and the New Testament contain so many suggestions that God is one. We affirm one God, three persons, three persons, one God. Now, that's delightfully untidy. We have just stumbled upon the fact that you cannot think about God the Father without talking about how we're loved in the Son or how the Spirit helps us cry, Abba, Father. We should be moved between awe of the one and the three, the three and the one. Someone once said, no sooner do I conceive of the one, I'm illuminated by the splendor of the three. 
When I contemplate the three together, I see one flame, one torch, and I cannot divide or measure out this undivided light. All of this leads to the next practical point. The Trinity gives us a language to talk about God. Say language. Language, thank you. Our triune God is wonderfully kind. Did you know that? Not only does he give seasons and nature the ability to bake food, but God the Father shows his kindness, especially in sending his son, Jesus. Titus 3, 4 and 5. God's kindness has appeared and it looks like Jesus. And the spirit of kindness of God lives inside of us. Therefore, the Trinity tells us it's okay to pray to the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. You don't have to pick. But we recognize that we pray in the Spirit to the Father by the Son. You see, we can use family language when talking about God and to God. This is the relationship God has revealed to us. Imagine you have a father, hypothetically here, in this instance, who is very, very wealthy, but doesn't care for you at all. You don't ask your wealthy father for anything because... He's not going to respond. Now imagine you have a father who's really, really generous. will give you the clothes off his back, but he's so poor he has no clothes on his back to give you, right? You don't ask him for anything because you know he can't provide for you. Yet when we bring our requests before God, we affirm he is willing and able and kind. You see, God is not distant or distracted or detached from your life. God really is in you. Jesus really does stand before God the Father on your behalf God really does hear your prayer in heaven, yet God is present everywhere always. As you go into your week, as you consider your life choices and as you pray, the Trinity reminds you that you have not got a static God, but a triune God working in you and for you, listening to you, showing you kindness, giving you mercy and grace for all your failings and all your sins in the most dynamic and personable way imaginable. You can have a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. However, as we think of the Trinity, um, this diagram is not very helpful because it kind of shows that God is three but not one. But I think you get the idea of how we relate to all three of them. So we have three errors then that people have often slipped to when talking about the Trinity. The first one is what we call modalism. This says that Father, Son, and Spirit are not three persons of the one God, but that God's like an actor. And at different points in time, God assumes a different person. At creation, he was creating. And then he stopped doing that, and he became someone else and took on a different mode, and, you know, Jesus and the Pentecost. And... But God's not assuming different persons at different points in time. If that were true, you could pick a part of God and choose which one you relate to. Or, worse still, you can no longer relate to God the Father or Jesus because he's moved on to be the Spirit. Terrible. No. Or there's something that's called tritheism. This says, Father, Son, and Spirit are three gods in a cluster. Do you know, in my garden a few weeks ago, it rained. It probably rained where you were too. But when I went out, I found worms. Do you know what the worms were doing? They were clustered together, like three, four, five, six in a ball. Have you ever seen that before? Weird, isn't it? But God's not like a cluster. Three together is one, kind of untangleable. That's tritheism. No, God's not like that. And then the other one is Arianism. This says that Jesus and the Spirit proceeded or were created and came from God the Father. They had a beginning. Now that error says Jesus is the highest of all creation, but he's still created and he's not equal with God in dignity or in essence. We reject all that. But you see, why we do that is because all three of them 
destroy one of the dearest and most practical implications of why the Trinity matters. The Trinity is relational. Say relational. Relational. As a human, you're made for community and peace and harmony and love. We long for unity in diversity, for clear communication, for being understood and listened to. And you crave that from someone faithful and trustworthy. And you see people working for this all over the place, all the time. Yet, tragically, human desires corrupt themselves, sin collapses in on itself, and and the peace and community we long for is short-lived, is it not? But the Trinity reminds us these longings come from being made in the image of a triune God, as the kids' talk started to show us. The Trinity is the first community. God is a community that has not been stained by sin or selfish desires. It means that this relationship that God has with himself is a model for every other relationship. As Jesus says in John 17, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. And then in verse 13, I'm coming to you that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Just think. To love, to love you need someone else. And so saying that God is love is to say God is a community. Therefore, was God lonely when he made humans? No. He's a perfect, loving community. Was God bored? No. He doesn't need creation for existence. Was God seeking praise? No. God's not egotistical. He's perfect and complete. He doesn't lack anything. Therefore, God creates a good world as an expression of who he is so that the world and all creation can share his divine love and joy that already exists. By creating, he then invites us into his community. And when Jesus dies, he restores the brokenness of the world back to God. Not just in us, but all creation benefits from Jesus' death, you see. Therefore, what Jesus tells us in John 17 there is the intimacy and joy he had with God before the creation of the world is what you're invited into through trusting him as Lord. If we imagine we're our own lords, we cannot enjoy God's eternal community and lordship. But what we see in Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, is this breathtaking glimpse of the reality of God who exists as Father, Son, Spirit, an eternal, unbreakable relationship. Being a Christian is swept up into that love and eternal joy of God because only a triune God can be that for his creatures and all creation. So, Trinity keeps us humble. Trinity gives us a language to talk about God. Trinity is relational. Last thing, and we'll end here, the Trinity means we can imitate God. Everyone say imitate. Imitate. We're called to love and live in a Trinitarian way as God is love. So Ephesians 5.1 says, Follow God's example as dearly loved children. May I challenge you, if you're a Christian here today, may I challenge you on this last point particularly? Because God is personal, he's communicating to you and me a vision and a way of life. Therefore, do you imitate God's vision and way of life with your life? Expect that to grate against you sometimes because God is other than and his vision is bigger than yours. Expect the sinless, perfect community of God to confront you with your sinful selfishness at times. But expect it to be ridiculously joyful. After all, Jesus prays that we would have the fullest measure of joy that exists in the community of God in us, knowing him, following his ways. Are you resolved to follow this God's vision for life? Are you in awe of God because he's triune? I do hope so. So let's end today 
as we'll sing in a moment of our triune God, to our triune God. But let me end with some famous words Christians have said for centuries. And then I'll pray. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. A wonderful God, you've revealed yourself in ways we can know and understand and comprehend most clearly through your word, Jesus the Christ. Help us to love and trust you. Help us to comprehend a little bit more that you are triune, not for knowledge's sake, but for the joy of knowing you more. And may we imitate you in all our days for your glory alone. Amen.